Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Jennifer Standish. Jennifer is the author of Permission Granted, Live Your Full, Your Live Your Life Full of Joy and Peace, a book in which she shares 91 self-limiting beliefs that as a result of being raised by a narcissistic mother and an enabling father, she learned growing up and realized as an adult she needed to change to be happy. She is also the founder and president of Give Yourself Permission, which helps women create new rules for their lives so they can overcome limiting attitudes that prevent them from achieving career success and finding happiness. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, I, you know, your story is so fascinating. Uh, you talk about having a mom who's narcissistic, a father who enabled you. And we know that you've also struggled with eating disorders. And at the age of 16, you were suicidal. The question I, I want to start us off with was talk to me about being suicidal and high functioning. Yes, I have a tremendous amount of experience with that because that was pretty much my entire life was I, it was similar to walking on the edge of a cliff where I knew I didn't want to be alive, but if I had to be alive, I certainly didn't want to be homeless or institutionalized. So I was going to perform and I was going to go to work every day and I was going to make money and I was going to have a nice house and I was going to do everything that everybody else does. And I was going to appear normal because I didn't want to tip anybody off. Certainly what was, you know, what was going on in my head. And so I just played the game really well and knew that at some point in time, something was going to send me over or really what kept me alive was I was just searching for a way to kill myself that didn't involve any pain and was guaranteed to work. And that was pretty difficult. But um, so, yeah, so I, you know, I'm and I'm sure I'm like a lot of people where I I played the game really, really well. And people would have been shocked if I had been successful because they would have been, you know, just like many of the high profile suicides lately. It's like, oh, there were no signs. Well, there are no signs because people like me, um, we didn't we didn't want we don't want help we weren't, we weren't dropping signs. We wanted to stay under, I wanted to stay undercover. I didn't want help from anyone. I didn't want anyone to interrupt my plans. I had already decided that I wanted to die in death and life after death was better than what it was here. And so I just played the game really well and was just trying to figure out a way to do it in such a way that wasn't painful and was guaranteed to work. So talk to me about what is contributing to that. Talk to me about, I mean, at 16 to want to end your life, what was, what were you experiencing up to that point? Well, I was raised, uh, my mother, I cannot diagnose her, but she had strong narcissistic tense tendencies and my father enabled her. 
which is the case. You never have two narcissists that hook up. You always have a narcissist and an enabler. And then I had an older sister and a younger sister who, in order to survive, turned against me. So that was the so that was one part of the problem. The other problem was I was my mother's enemy because I threatened her status as princess. And so her her goal in life was to just annihilate me. And so I, so not only living with a narcissist, um, but I was then the narcissist's enemy. And so by the time I was 16, I was a mess. I had two eating disorders and wanted to kill myself because um, I had been told I was dumb, like brain damaged level dumb, would not go to college, would always need support. Um, I was thwarted. It was just, it was, I did not belong in the family. I was the problem. I was the black sheep. And in fact, I was probably the healthiest one because I was the one that was, you know, screaming out in pain. And I had no options. There was no place for me to go. I had no allies. I was all alone and the anxiety was through the roof. So yeah, it was pretty bad. So you talked about being the black sheep and, and that stood out to me because I was talking to a friend who was the complete opposite of the rest of her family. And I was like, are oh, you kind of like the black sheep? And she was like, more like the outlier. And, and I like that reframing because, you know, for a lot of us, we do feel like the black sheep. We feel like we've been ostracized, like we don't belong. They're trying to kick us out. Um, when you talk about your mom being a narcissist or having narcissistic tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. Can you define what that is? Because a lot of people still don't understand what that looks like. And, and what does an enabler look like? Well, for... In, in my situation, my mother was in constant competition with me. So anytime I achieved something, it, it was cut down and she had to achieve, she had to um, either squash it or minimize, minimize the achievement. Um, because I was raised to believe I was dumb, I performed very poorly in school, barely passed, um, you know, you know, K through 12. Uh, and um, I was always the problem child. I was always the child that I was the crazy dumb one. I was the one that always ruined things. Um, there was, there's no, it's, it's it, when you're raised by a narcissist, you're, you, you don't go through the traditional child developmental stages, your entire focus, you just become incredibly codependent on, on just your, your focus is how do I make this one person happy? And um, so I did not grow up knowing what I liked and didn't like what I thought what I wanted, I had no moral code, I just the entire focus on the family was keeping this one person happy and she was volatile. So the hypervigilance was extreme. The anxiety was extreme. Um, and my father in many ways was one of the children because he too was trying to make that one person happy and make that one person um, who was, who, and it was impossible. So uh, we were, it, it, it's, we're robbed, children of narcissists are just robbed of their childhood. And so what ends up happening is 
we grew, I grew up, graduated from college and was just really just a shell of a human being because I had no sense of self. I had no, and I had no self-esteem and we just, we just really, you know, suffer. So the father, you know, never stuck up for us and never defended us. He was always um, trying to minimize and placate the, the volatile narcissist. And so um, in thinking back about all of the, you know, things that were done, I, I mean, it was, and in my book, I talk about one of the things that, that we, that I had to learn to do was, you know, you're allowed to flush the toilet at night because I can remember as a tiny child accidentally flushing the toilet at night and waking her up and her running in the bathroom. And I knew as soon as I did it, I just stood there in fear. And we're talking a little tiny child in, in, in pajamas with little ducks on them, you know, this woman coming, running in, waving her arms, screaming, how could you do this? How could you do this? How could you wake me up? This is a woman who didn't work and she just, she slept in every day till 10 a.m. And here she is berating a five-year-old maybe for flush. And, and so it's, it's just that type. It's was, yeah, it was a very, it, yeah, it was very volatile and um, uh, unsupportive and unloving. It was crazy. It was, I, I have 91 rules that I was taught as a child that completely sabotaged my life and caused a nervous breakdown at 23. And that's my that was, that's what my book is about is you know all the rules that I was programmed, all the beliefs I was programmed to believe about myself. Um, that ended up causing a nervous breakdown at 23. Uh, before we get into that, talk to me more about 16, suicidal. What kept you tethered? The, uh, my boyfriend at the time went to my parents and said she's going to kill herself. And, they, and so I think at that point they were like, okay, well, we should give her a therapist or something. And so I went to a therapist who then interviewed everyone in the family. And he came back to me and said, we're just going to put you on some medication and we're going to get you through high school so that you graduate. And then you're going to go to college and you are going to milk your parents for all their worth. And then you are never, ever, ever going to go home because this is not your fault, but there's no changing this. There's no help. There's nothing you can do about this. And it has nothing to do with you and you're the you're the just and that even though my life continued to be a struggle and continued to suffer from hardships that was always in the back of my head of just get out and flee go as far away from this these this family as possible and so I graduated early I went to college I ended up 3,000 miles away and didn't really return home could be a decade or more your boyfriend tells your parents and your parents take you to therapy the therapist says there's no way out we're just going to medicate you and get you through this yeah which I have to say when I hear that it makes me understand medication more because 
there are so many people who are in these um, dire situations where you can't change it. And the only thing we can do is kind of help you survive it until you can get yourself out. We're just trying to buy you time, which is, which is fair. And, and which is shocking that a therapist would even say that to you. Right. But it's, but when you look at the situation, I mean, you children get removed from households for, you know, physical abuse and stuff, but nobody was going to come into my house and say, this, this woman is a narcissist and she is systematically destroying this child's will to live. And we need nobody that does not happen, didn't happen then. And it doesn't happen now. Um, It's, it's so much harder with emotional abuse. It's really criminal. I think there's, there's something almost criminal about raising a child without self-esteem because it, it sets that child up for a lifetime of failure because every decision that child makes is made out of fear and no decision made out of fear is ever a good decision. And that's my life was my adult life was completely sabotaged. And the therapist, I even had a therapist tell me that the best thing that I could have done for her was probably to commit suicide because she could have milked that forever and ever and ever and would have enjoyed it. She would have used that as I am the parent, my daughter commits suicide. Oh, she could have done so much with it. I mean, every holiday you think about it, I I mean, she would have, she would have enjoyed it. All the attention that would have been, you know, that she would have received from it. That's a narcissist. You know, it's first of all, sounds very painful just to, you know, the one person who has given you life uh, that should that you expect to have your support, your love and 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 to give you all the tools you would need to cope with life. Um, And then you have a father who is enabling the behavior of your mom. uh, Right. Yeah. And he would very often throw her under the bus, uh, but it was, but he, but he behaved very much like a child himself in the whole thing. But going back, that's what I struggled with the first years in therapy was I would look at these baby pictures of myself and say, how could they have hated her so much? She was so cute and she was so adorable and she was an easy baby. And I hear all the stories and then, and it was like, what did I do wrong? What was it that I did so bad that I was so unworthy of their love? And, and I wish somebody would have snapped those photos out of my hand and said, it would have been any child. It had nothing to do with you. You were wonderful. You were great. You just shone too bright and you were too challenging to her and she just couldn't have competition. So she had to, this was what she couldn't, she couldn't share, um, the house with you. So it had actually nothing to do with you. It wasn't personal. Um, and I think that that might have helped a little bit. But for years, I just looked at those baby pictures with tears going, what was wrong with me? Why did I what did I do? What was so wrong with me? There was nothing wrong with me. What stands out to me, and this is I just I'm just realizing this. You said princess, right? Like she wanted to be the princess and she couldn't stand that uh, you were the princess in her mind. And it was interesting that you chose princess and not queen. I, I would think that 
they would want to be the queen, but she would want to be the princess. Oh, it could it could be both. It could be one or the other. It, she could be queen. Yeah, I was just a threat to her. Uh, she just needed to be, she just needed the world to revolve around her and receive all of the attention. And so when she was, you know, when she realized probably when I was about two, two and a half, that I was this charismatic, fun, happy, giggly kind of baby that people, you know, I was a kind of baby that made people want to have babies. And, and then it was like, whoa, wait a minute. No, we don't, we don't want the attention to be directed to this child, we want it to be directed to me. And so that's when I think the narrative of, well, you know, we had a difficult labor and we think she probably has brain damage kind of came in. And well, you know, she's not, I mean, I think it came, it became early, early, early on that, that she started just, I mean, when I, when she asked, she asked, we were driving one day, I was, you know, high schoolish, and she, and she said, you know, your father and I were talking, and we were thinking that maybe what we could do is we could buy you a, a salon, and you could be like a hairdresser, and this is no disregard to hairdressers or anything, but she was not saying it in an empowering way. It was just like, you know, and we'll help you run your business, and you can kind of cut hair just like Patty does, and, you know, and, um, and you can stay in this tiny little town in upstate New York. And I said, well, no, I want to go to college. And she's, she just kind of looked at me and was like, oh, well, we, there's got to be a place that will take you. I mean, we'll find a place. There's got to be one place. I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be some college that will take you. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's got to be one. Yeah. <laughs> So it was just, <laughs> it was just like, really, this is what you're, you know? Um, and then, but when I got to college, I got straight A's and uh, how was that kind of, a, you know, that's kind of interesting. How did I get, it was a straight A college student yet I barely passed K through 12 and it was the hypervigilance. It was the anxiety. It was the belief that I was dumb and wouldn't amount to anything. So why try? The, you know, you talked about the eating disorders earlier on. Yeah. And, and going to therapy. It's not like you were in therapy for a while. How did, what else did the therapist say to you? What tools, what, what reframes? Like, I would assume that there were, there were things that he said to you, wanted you to do, helped you to cope with besides the medication. Well, the therapist in high school didn't last long. Um, but I, I be, but what happened was I was bulimic and which is a control, it's just, it's a control. And, and I was also raised to believe that if, uh, I wasn't thin, um, no one would love me. So there was this intense pressure to be very thin. And, uh, so it was when I got to college that the bulimia became really problematic and, um, but it really wasn't addressed in high school. It was, and in fact, my thinness and uh, was 
Well, when she did find out that I was bulimic in high school, she told me to stop eating her food if I was just going to throw it up. And that was, that was her, that was, that was the one, that was the one uh, acknowledgement of my bulimia in high school. But then when I got to college, it got really bad and I ended up, you know, needed, needing, needing some professional help. Um, but by that time I was out of the house and um, uh, was kind of unraveling in a different way. <laughs> Which is fascinating because, you know, you're, you're getting straight A's and still struggling with the eating disorder. Uh, oh yes. Right. I'm yes. And I graduate from college and, you know, I get the eating disorder under, under wraps somehow. I don't know how. And I graduate from college and I become a marketing researcher in the advertising industry because I think it sounds smart. And I, and I do fairly well the, for a year or two, but once I reach a level where I'm expected to have opinions. Now, mind you, I'm a shell of a human being. I have no opinions. I just mirror other people around me. I had a nervous breakdown and because I had such severe imposter syndrome. It was, it was, it was like, I couldn't handle, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't fake it anymore. I, and so I had a nervous breakdown and I ended up in, in, having to leave advertising and I sold sodas and juice at a strip club on Sunset Boulevard just to pay for my therapy. And I was in individual therapy and group therapy. And I walked into my therapist's office and said, there's two things I know about myself is I like pizza and I'm blonde and that's it. And he goes, well, we'll start from there. But I had, I knew nothing about myself. I didn't know what I liked, what I didn't like, my goals. I had no moral code. I just sat in a room and just was like, are we pro-choice? Are we pro-life? Republican, Dem like, what are we? What's like, I had no idea who I was, what I wanted. And I think that's very common when you're raised by a narcissist is you just but what happened was I spent the next 20 years building the foundation upon which I could build a wonderful life, which took me from like 28 or, you know, 25 to 45, which is the 20 years that it takes a human being to become an adult. I had to do that all on my own while suffering from depression and supporting myself somehow. And it was a rough road. So I had panic attacks. I had, I made a ton of mistakes, so many mistakes. Um, it, yeah, none of it was easy. None of it was easy. Talk to me about uh, dating a little bit. And the reason why I'm asking is I would imagine having, you know, being raised in a household you were raised because it wasn't, because we're talking about your mom, your dad, and then also your siblings, right? And and feeling like you don't have a, a place to go. How how did you show up in relationships, and and what was what's been your experience like with that? Younger, I was a walking false advertisement. I just did exactly what they wanted. So, so I liked somebody; they liked me. Well, a lot of it was and I talked about this in the book was I dated people who liked me. So it was very much like a gym class. It was like, Oh, you picked me. Okay. <laughs> I'll like you. Um, and I dated a lot of really wonderful men 
who I had either nothing in common with or no chemistry with or were just bad picks. And I just molded myself into what I thought was going to get me love. And, you know, fast forward months, years down the road, I just was in this relationship that was not authentic to what I needed and what I wanted. And I would end up leaving and then it would start all over again. And so it took me until my mid forties to really, uh, figure out the dating. And then I was, I was married briefly to a wonderful man, um, who really taught me so much about what it was like to be loved unconditionally. And unfortunately that marriage didn't last, but it set me up well for my next marriage, which I've yet to meet that person. So, um, it's, 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 I'm single (laughs) if anyone's in LA. (laughs) I, I, I love that my next marriage. That, that's, that's yes, I, I'm going to be married again, and he's going to be wonderful and fabulous. And uh, I, I, yeah, and and thank God for my first husband because he was he was wonderful, and he set the bar very high. And I am I am actively looking for for my next husband. I don't know where he's going to come from, but um, I'm delighted to meet him when I do. I would imagine that growing up with so much volatility uh, and ex- explosiveness, uh, you know, and the whole hypervigilance, that uh, there's a buildup of like resentment or anger or rage. How do you manage those emotions if they are there for you presently? I don't have that. Um, I do in relationships, you just, we, I'm not somebody who yells and I don't want to be yelled at. So uh, that is, that is something that I have, I will actively avoid, but I am right now really grateful for everything that happened to me because it enables me to help other women who are in similar spots because I can help somebody who tried to commit suicide or lives with severe depression, um, imposter syndrome, uh, anxiety, low self-esteem, codependence. I mean, I can help all of these women live um, with less anxiety and find peace and joy, whether it's a new career or um, it's just finding joy in their in the current life. So if you look at all of those years, um, I'm really grateful because I kind of went from a hot mess to a healer. And, and I say in my book, you know, I love my family. I'm not in contact with my family. I've divorced, I divorced them years ago. Um, But I will say my biological family, I love their souls and I know we will meet again and we will be fine, but who they are and how they manifest in this world right now, I cannot have them in my life, but I love their souls and, and we're going to be fine. And so there isn't any rage or resentment. I love that. And so, you know, tying into the whole joy, what are some of the daily habits of practice daily? that can help dramatic help a person dramatically change their life for the better. Sure. So I definitely work on 
uncovering the self-limiting beliefs that you're programmed to have. And I believe everybody, you know, for the first seven years of our lives, everything that we see, touch, taught, whatever, it goes straight into our brain. There's no filter. It's just like you're being hypnotized. It just... And so that becomes our programming. So I think doing a deep dive into what are you programmed to do? Because our subconscious runs our life 95% of the time. We're completely unaware of the decisions that our subconscious is making for us. So if you want happiness and peace, you need to take control over your mind and your mindset and your programming because you can change it. And so, so that to me is like, do a deep dive into what you were programmed, your original programming, and, and you can actively change it and you will change your life because life is an inside job, right? You've got to change the inside before you change the outside, but actively look for things that bring you joy because when you feel joy and you are feel grateful for the life you have, you exude this energy out into the world and energy is always looking to match energy. And so you will bring that energy back into your world effortlessly. And so actively seek out joy and, and make it a priority because what you, we're all energy. And so what you put out into the world, you get back and being grateful and experiencing joy is where we vibrate the highest and we could all use more, more joy. Um, also be very aware of your emotions and how are you feeling and keeping Jen, track I'm sorry, of Jen, before we get into that second part, can you talk oh, yeah. to me about what that looks like seeking out joy? Because I, I can imagine so many people who are so used to being melancholic or in a place of despair you know, the, the, that ability to recognize joy may have atrophied. So can you give us some examples of what that would look sure. like? Sure. So part of it is being aware of what you are feeling. So that way, when you may perhaps stumble upon joy, you actually recognize it for what it is. So when, one of the things that I do is I get out of my house every single day. I force myself because I'm an introvert. I self-isolate. So I force myself to get outside and do something every day, even if it's just wandering the grocery store. I need to be around people. I need to be around their energy. Um, and uh, so, so get out of the house and take a walk, hug a tree, lay in the grass. Um, and then, and if you don't know what brings you joy, go out and experiment get on meetup.com or something and participate and just participate in one activity that you may not like or you may and so i have found that i love to sail and so i go sailing and i uh you know and it's i found a meetup group i just moved to los angeles i've been here three months i need three or four months i want to make friends i join meetup and so now i go sailing and i have a bunch of friends that i sail with um i so it's it's especially introverts and people who um are are depressed it's it is get put your clothes on and go out and be amongst people and get just do one thing maybe once a week that you've never done before. Um, it could be 
go to an art museum, go just do something. And this is part of building the foundation upon which you can have an amazing life is, is figuring it out. And this was a lot of my mistakes early on is that I didn't know what I liked and what I didn't like. So I had to try a whole bunch of different things. And, and a lot of it I didn't enjoy, but at least I knew I could cross it off the list. So I'm not a live music person, right? But I did it. Um, but it takes effort. And this is the hard part when you are an introvert and you're depressed is where do you find that energy? And I think that's where it comes down to, you have to ask yourself, is this the life I wanna lead? Do I wanna be alive? And if I wanna be alive and fully, and not walking on and not being a high functional suicidal person, but truly alive, and participating in life to its fullest, if the answer is yes, then it's going to take putting on the sneakers and putting on the pants and the whatever and making that effort, even if it's just a block, you know, walking around the block. This is what I do is I walk almost every day and I say hi to every single person I pass and they are shocked and they smile back and they like, oh my God, you see me. And it gives me that, that joy of seeing somebody who doesn't think that anybody sees them, right? And then they experience the joy. And so I walk all over Los Angeles saying hi to complete strangers. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it makes me feel so good. And it makes me feel connected to my community and to people. And sometimes there's actual conversations that happen. But so I think finding joy is about making some big decisions about what you want out of life and then saying, well, it's going to take some energy and it's going to take some trial and error, but that's okay. I, I love that part, especially about experimentation and trial and error, because, you know, I'm always trying to get things right. Like I, I, I got, and I always think that I know what I like and what I don't like, but throughout life, you know, what we enjoy and what will bring us joy, that can change over time. So I love that idea of, of being experimental. And yeah. then you were, you were about to talk about the, the second thing in terms, second habit. Oh, um, uh, what do you Around mean? Around emotions. We were talking about the, the, oh. the habits if practiced daily that can dramatically change your life. And uh, and then, uh, before I, you were about to start talking about emotions before I cut you off, I was like, Oh, wait, wait. I, oh, I yes. A, yes. I need a deeper dive on this fine, seeking joy thing. Sure. So we're all a bunch of energy and energy is always looking to match energy. And so if you want to change your life, change your inside energy. And so I affirmations are and, and getting rid of the negative internal monologue that people have running, um, getting, getting that kind of under control, um, it's not going to solve all the problems in the world, but it's a really good start. Um, and so when you're searching for, for more joy, when you find it, seek it out further, because when you're energetically in gratitude, um, and, um, and are happy, that's what 
that's what you're sending out into the world. And that's what the world is going to match you and send back to you. So um, it's having that positive growth mindset. I mean, life is mindset. And I tell people all the time, I tell my clients all the time, it's like, okay, you know, there's one, you have one, you're looking at a particular situation one way, but there are lots of ways to think about this situation. You happen to be choosing one that is negative and makes you feel bad and it makes you probably want to quit your job, but let's look at about all these other ways. So life is about mindset and perspective. And when you change your mindset and realize that you have full control over your thoughts and feelings, you are not your thoughts and feelings and you can choose Lots of different ways to interpret a situation. So take control of your mind and choose to look at things differently. And sometimes it does take effort to say, and here's a great, perfect example, uh, a friend of mine's uh, you know, family farm burned down to the ground, lost all sorts of heirlooms, could have been the worst day in her and her families and cousins and nieces and nephews. It could have been hundreds of people could it could have just you know been incredibly traumatic for all of them she looked at it and said i get to travel i get to travel the world i no longer have to take care of this 300 year old farm that i somehow inherited like now i get to have a much bigger life and a different life and and so if for her it was incredibly freeing there's always a silver lining there's always something good that can be taken from it and it takes practice because our amygdala doesn't want to look at the good it only wants to look at the bad because that's how it's programmed is it still thinks we're being chased by saber-toothed tigers and wants to keep us alive it doesn't want us to be happy doesn't it just wants us to be alive (laughs) so it takes some practice but that's how you can bring more joy into your life is by changing your mindset and your perception and when that changes your world around you can literally change because you start seeing opportunities um for friendships, for career, you know, career opportunities that you might not have seen. Otherwise, you start to see those things and then you start having the courage and the self-confidence to pursue those things. So your life literally does get bigger and better. You're absolutely right. Yesterday, I, like five, I talked to maybe five different people on the phone and I'm a person who has this constant script in my head of like, I'm lonely. Nobody wants to talk to me. Uh, nobody calls me. And then I'm like five, I talked to five people today and, and like three of them called me, you know, and, but my brain was, was so still so stuck in a script of an old script that it was failing to recognize and even take a, taking a moment to cherish the fact that I have people in my life who are just calling a check in on me and then people that I can call who pick up. But I, I wanted to go right back to the old uh, mode. So you're right. Like mindset, such a big part of it. Because even when life is handing you joy and happiness, uh, we may not recognize it. We might walk right past it, and and uh, and then we. It's just so that we can keep our script running. Yes, my client. One of my clients the other day said that she had had so much anxiety over the weekend because she had allocated two hours to take down all of her Christmas decorations and it ended up taking her the entire day and it ruined her entire weekend. And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening. And I said, I know I love my to-do lists. I, you know, and I allocate, and I very often under allocate time 
or I over allocate time. And then when that gets it, it you know, the anxiety and uh, because I like order and stuff, I said, but let's just be grateful that that's what caused your anxiety was organizing Christmas decorations. <laughs> Because there are people in the world that would love that anxiety. <laughs> she started to laugh and she goes, yes, I know, really. Yes, that's what I'm complaining about is the Christmas decorations took longer. She goes, oh, I just need to shut up. I just need to. So yes, it is. It's being, see, this is where it is, being very present in your life and staying, don't, don't go on autopilot. Be very present because when you go on autopilot, that amygdala, your subconscious, it just takes right over. And it is, it still thinks you're being, you know, being chased by dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers, and it still wants you to be safe. And um, it will, it will take, it, it will hijack your, the amygdala hijack is very real. And so you have to watch yourself. So I want to switch gears here a little bit, because, you know, reading through your bio, I know that part of your work involved cold calling people. Yes. And I want to, I want to bring this up because there's so many people, including myself who struggle with one cold calling people and two, even calling people that I know just to reach out. There are times where I'm in pain or, or, you know, people are in pain or suffering and they have people that they can call and reach out to. But the phone feels so heavy when you're struggling, when you're in despair. And cold calling is one of those things that is fascinating to me because you immediately have to build connection with this person. And, and so talk to me about what, what's the, the, the key to building a connection in a cold call because I want the listeners to understand that there are techniques to talking to somebody that you've never talked to so that we can all make friends. Cause it's also a great way to, to make friends in a, in a cold way. Like, cause sometimes you're making a cold call in person where it's like, Hey, meet my friend, such and such. You're like, what do I say to this person? Uh, well, okay. So this could be, this could be a huge podcast, cold calling and call reluctance. So I, I am have been told by many CEOs of of sales enablement software and platforms that I'm one of the best cold callers out there. And I learned it because I ended up in one of my jobs. I was a sales consultant, marketing. I worked for a marketing consulting firm, and and it was my job. I and I am naturally just very very good at it. And so part of it is mindset, is believing that you have every right to call a person during business hours to discuss business. And you have every, you're not calling anyone at home. You're not bothering anybody. This is how business gets done. So you have every right to call them. You've done your homework. You're making sure that you're not calling people with whom your goods and services are irrelevant. So, you, you know, and, and you're calling to help. And this means that you believe in what you're calling about, you are passionate about what you're calling about, and if you're calling to help and you're just wanting to introduce yourself, then all you're asking for is time. You're not asking for a business decision. And so if you call and are authentic and have integrity and you want to help, 
that is going to communicate like you're they're going to know there's something about that energy that gets transmuted over the phone that that you're going to sound different and if you're calling the right person and saying the right thing and asking for time then they would be remiss in their professional responsibility to the company they work for to not give you the time like they should give you time even if it's 10 minutes and if you say you know, I'd like to just introduce myself. I only need 10 to 15 minutes whenever it's convenient. Well, you're asking whenever it's convenient. So really, so, so, so to me, it's, it goes back to mindset. You are allowed to call people. People take calls. People like getting cold calls. They understand that this is how business is done. They just want the cold caller to be responsible. They don't want to be called for things that have nothing to do with their business. So, you know, just if you're so, so it's um, a lot of it is just respecting the other person's time and, and, and doing your homework. And now, um, so I still teach people how to cold call. I still help people with call reluctance because a lot of my clients come to me um, and, uh, and cold calling, call reluctance is very complicated. And it inevitably all goes back to childhood because, uh, you know, don't interrupt. Well, what is a cold call? Is an interrupt. Don't be a pest. Well, a lot of people think cold calls are pests, right? Um, don't speak until you're spoken to. Then there's this hierarchy of a lot of people are calling people that are older than them. So then there's this, uh, you know, they don't feel as if they're an expert. They don't feel as if they can, you know, talk to somebody who's older than them. And so there's just all these psychological um, hurdles that they have to get over. But it's all mindset. It's all core beliefs. If you believe in what you're calling about, right? So anyway, um, I do help people with car reluctance. Now, reaching out and calling friends. What I find very helpful is how many think about like, you would take a cold call from a friend who needed to connect. In a second, you would take that call. Well, you have friends that would do that for you. And this goes back to kind of gift giving is people love to give gifts. So sometimes you have to be the receiver of a gift in order to give the gift of being, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? You have to accept a gift in order for that person to enjoy the gift of being a gift giver. So you, you have people that, will, that you would take calls from. There are people and there are people that would take your calls. And what I like to say is, I need 10 minutes of your undivided attention. Do you have it? And if not, when do you have it? Because that's what I'm really asking for is, I need 10 minutes of your undivided attention. And normally people will either stop right then and there and say, you have my undivided attention or no, it's not a good time. Call me at five. When I get out of work, you will have an hour of my undivided attention. And when you give somebody your undivided attention or when you receive it, it is such a gift. It is so healing just to be present for someone and know that when you reach out, you're making somebody feel good because they can be there for you just as like you would be there for them. So you're giving them a gift by allowing them to give you that time. If I that love, makes sense. Uh, absolutely makes sense. And I, and I love that reframe and you're so right because I super enjoy giving someone a gift 
and then seeing their reaction and then hearing later on about how the how you know the gift has impacted their life and and i think for you know people who are listening i mentioned this before a, a way to continue the relationship where you can call someone and uh, you know kind of unburden your emotions or, or share what you're going through is to also call that same person later and say how that conversation with them helped you uh you know get through a moment or get through life be like you know that conversation we had two months ago that really helped me to reframe and here's what happened and then that's a way of you giving the gift back to them is to let you know how uh how much of an impact it was it's almost like a thank you letter uh, so sure sure and and people are 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 very flattered when when they realize that you've chosen them to confide in and that you see them as somebody as you see them as an, an integral part of your support system that's very flattering to somebody and by reaching out that that it's it's a situation it's a two-way street you're giving you're both giving and receiving so talking about giving and receiving you have uh, uh what's going on february 11th for you jennifer yes so 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 I have a workshop at the Enberg Community Beach Center, which is right in Santa Monica. It's right on the beach. Um, I have a workshop for women, and it's called Permission to Thrive. And it's based on my book, which is, you know, 91 limiting beliefs that I had to rewrite in order for myself to live a bigger life. And so I have a companion workbook to the book. And that's what we're going to be doing is we will, it's a small group of women, we're going to get together and look at all of the programming that, you know, that they have been given uh, and that, and the, the programming and the rules and the beliefs that no longer work for them or may have never worked for them. And so it's their opportunity to go through what were you, what were they taught about their career, their body, success, failure, all sorts of different topics. And then then rewrite them, rewrite the rules to their lives and the rules will be empowering and encouraging. And it's the first step in kind of like pulling back the layers and saying, what are you programmed to believe and to think and to feel? And you get an opportunity to, re to say, no, this doesn't work for me. Let's rewrite. I want new rules for my life, new beliefs for my life. And so it's from 10 to 3. You know, you get to sleep in and it gets early, it gets over at 3. And so you have the day to spend on the beach. Um, I have yummy lunch coming in, and everybody's going to get a copy of my book and then the workbook and journals and all sorts of little goodies for them to take home with them. But I think it will be a great day for, for women to come together be with like-minded, loving, supporting women, and really take control over their thoughts. And when you take control of your thoughts and feelings, you take control of your happiness and your life. And so this is just one of many ways to do that. And um, I invite, um, I'm happy to invite and you know all the women out there who feel that this would benefit them. And so just go to jenniferstandish.com backslash workshop and you can find all the information there about it. I love that. And we'll link to that in the show notes. 
And then is is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think would be important for anybody out there struggling with uh, mental illness or suicide ideations or, or bulimia or self-limiting beliefs? Yeah, well, I want to just talk to any of your listeners out there who are... Um, who are suicidal. So I tried to commit suicide a few years ago and um, it was a disaster. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. (laughs) And there's a comedy sketch in there somewhere. I just have to hook up with the right comedian to write it because it literally was a Laurel and Hardy everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And I just ended up abandoning the attempt and was just like, I just didn't research this well enough. This is, I just didn't know how to do it this way. Like I just, I never, I didn't, you know, and so it just was hysterical. Um, But anyway, what I learned after that failed suicide attempt was how much I would have regretted it had it worked. And I and how much I want to live. And gosh, if, if I had been successful, I, that, it, 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 it would have, I really would have regretted it. And so for any of your listeners out there that are suicidal, I would just say, um, take a few steps forward and just think, gosh, if you, if this is really what you want, let's just think this through because I know I'm so grateful that it didn't, that I wasn't successful. I'm so grateful that I'm alive. And I really believe that my, my struggle, you know, I went from a complete hot mess to a healer is that many people out there who are struggling, I offer you this, that maybe you're struggling because you too are a healer and you you just haven't gotten there yet. And that um, because, and, and the other thing that I, what, what happened with, with my suicide attempt was I really only needed 20 minutes to get my shit back together again before, and then I was fine. And so I think a lot of people that impulsively kill themselves, like I did, kind of, um, knowing that I only needed a couple minutes to re to, or reorganize myself and kind of get my, get my internal life back together, I guess. Um, it's, it's the people that commit suicide on impulse. I think that when, if, when they're successful, they then regret it. And I just don't want anyone to kill themselves and regret it. I want them to stay alive. Um, because I really would have regretted it if it had worked. And um, consider perhaps that you're struggling because maybe you're a healer like I am and that you're meant to help other people um, heal from a place where you are now and to stay alive and that you have a much bigger purpose. I don't know if that came out clearly, but. No, no, that was beautiful. And so now I, I got to have to ask is, do you have time for a couple more for one more question? Sure, sure, okay. I do. I have because, plenty of time. Because you shared that, you know, you realize you only needed 20 minutes to get your life together, to, to get your, your internal organized. 
what happened at the at the at 20 minutes like what did that look like for you 20 minutes go by and then what do you notice in your body what do you notice in your mind how do you pick up the pieces after so so it was when I just kind of realized that what I was doing really wasn't going to work. <laughs> I really wasn't going to be successful. <laughs> and I just kind of sat up and was just like, oh, this is so stupid. This is ridiculous. Like, look at me. Like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And I just kind of got myself up. And uh, just to back up a little bit, what had happened was I was I was uh, preparing my home to be an Airbnb house. Um, I was a wood professional wood turner. And so I had orders that I needed to get out. I, I had a line of kitchenware. I had just started my sales consulting company um, and a roommate had just left unexpectedly. And so there was tremendous financial pressure. And so I was... I was under so much stress. And what happened was I was in my barn working on my wood turning and I had one item left. And then I was going to go up, pack it up and mail it out. And then I was going to be free for the weekend to work on my house, to prepare it for the, for, you know, Airbnb. And the thing exploded on the lathe. And I, and that was it. I was done. I could not, I had no coping mechanisms and every cell in my body just said, Jen, no more. I can't do this anymore. No more. Just end it. Like the level, like you, we cannot sustain this level of stress, please. And it really was every cell in my body was saying, just end your life, please. Begging me, begging me. We cannot, we have my heart. You have four more beats left, Jen. My lungs, we got four more breaths and we're out of here let's hit reset. Let's, we just cannot, the way this is, this cannot continue. We need an out. And, um, and, and I tell people who have had somebody kill themselves that the level of pain that my body was in and the overwhelming sense of this is the absolute right decision there's no going back because I'm in so much pain I have to end this that I tell family members like your family your family member was not considering family and you and death that wasn't that's probably wasn't there is no choice at that point like when you're in that much pain you're not making decisions based on choices you're just trying to just move forward and the, the step forward is to end it so nobody was choosing you over death it was the enorm the enormity of the pain i mean when you reach that level it's all encompassing and I just looked at the hefty bags and just said, I'm just going to put this over my head and I'm going to tape it real tight and I'm just going to go to sleep and I'm going to die. Not ever having researched um, asphyxia, like it's the worst way to die. Talk about me, like, oh, it's awful. But at, at that moment, I was like, I really thought I was just going to fall asleep and die. And of course, that's not what happened at all, <laughs> at all. But as I'm laying on the ground, waiting to fall asleep, I'm getting a little more annoyed 
with every breath, I'm like, Ugh, I'm just getting so annoyed. Like, I just want a peaceful death. Like, why? Like, I'm taking control of my life. I just want to die. Well, oh, Jesus, I'm just so annoyed. And I'm getting annoyed. And this is what I'm getting annoyed by. Every time I inhale, the plastic touches my face. And I'm like, it's like Chinese water torture. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this is so annoying. And I'm trying to move my head so this thing doesn't touch my face. And I'm just, and I, and with it, I, I just can't figure it out. And I'm just getting more annoyed. And I just want this peaceful death. And I just don't understand. Like, I've had a life of struggle. And why can't at least, at least my death should be, you know, and I'm going on and on and on in my head. And I finally just pull some plastic up through the tape the duct tape to give myself more room and I'm like oh that's so nice but now I just have this breeze that's come through and I've ruined the seal and I just have just destroyed this whole attempt and so I just take it off my head and I just start to laugh and I just just like oh my god this was a mess this was ridiculous this is so ridiculous and but it was it was that like trying to do it and not it working and then being really annoyed at it not working and then I, and then when I took it off, I was just like, I didn't research this well enough. What was I thinking? <laughs> this was so stupid. <laughs> and then I was like, I was fine. I just went up to the house and just went on with my life. And I've, and I never really wanted to kill myself again, ever. So, so uh, annoyance saved your life. <laughs> The plastic touching my face. <laughs> the plastic, and I'm sure, and I'm, and I'm laying there thinking, the suicide gods are looking down on me, and they're looking at her, going, "Bitch, you're upset about plastic touching your face, and you want to take, you want us to take your life? No, you are staying right where you are. You're because that, that's such a baby. You're being such a baby. Oh, the plastic touches your face. Oh, the plastic. You, you know, it's going through my." <laughs> It was so ridiculous. So ridiculous. It reminds me of a man called Ooh, like uh by uh Frederick Bachman. Uh Tom Hanks is in a movie with him right now, and he's like constantly trying to end his life and like is just gets frustrated by so many things and trying to end his life that uh, you know, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Oh yeah. But well, it's just a comedy of errors. Oh, so there's my movie because for me. One of the things that I learned early on in this life of suicidal depression is that I have such a strong life force. Now, that doesn't mean I wanted to live, but I had such a strong life force that I couldn't harm myself. And, you know, as I had a workshop, there's plenty of tools in there, but I could not inflict pain on myself. And that is something that kept me alive, which is why I was looking for a way that involved no pain, but was, but was guaranteed to work. And that's, there are no ways, but um, yes. And, and I couldn't have jumped off a bridge. I couldn't have jumped off a building. I couldn't have shot myself. There was no stabbing involved. There was like, there was nothing, nothing. And so what I ended up doing for a long time was I would just put myself in dangerous situations where I would just stand too close to the curb and just think, well, if somebody shoved, you know, if I got pushed out into the street and got hit by a taxi, woo. so I figured I would just die by quote unquote accident. I, you know, I was living in New York through much of this. And so I'd ride the subway and I'd be looking at the subway thinking, you know, going, looking down the tunnel, 
looking for the subway coming, thinking anyone could push me now. <laughs> you know, this, this would be a good time, but nobody did. Or I would go for long walks in the middle of the night or late at night thinking I could just get hit by a car and it would be an accident. It would look like an accident or I would get very sick and not go to the hospital and figure I would just die at home because I knew I couldn't hurt myself. And I think that's a lot of what a lot of people out there do who are like me, who um, you just have such this, it's very hard to hurt yourself, very hard to inflict harm on yourself. And I think a lot of people like me who are, who were high functioning, maybe they can't inflict pain, they can't hurt themselves. So they're just waiting for an accident where maybe there's an accident at home and they don't end up calling for help and they just let it take its course or something like that. But that was, that was my, that was, that's what probably, that's what I was waiting for was some sort of accident. Um, and I just put myself in dangerous positions, hoping something would happen. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. And, you know, besides your workshop on February 11th in Santa Monica, California from 10 to three, um, what uh, what are you looking forward to, Jennifer? Oh, well, I'm looking forward to meeting my hus my future husband. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, it's just finding more joy in my life. Uh, I did an exercise recently with a coach about work with my inner child. And um, and she just said, find more joy. And so for me, it's, I have a, a brand new electric bike and I live in Los Feliz. And so I ride around Los Feliz on this electric bike as much as I can. Um, I'm at the beach as much as I can. Um, I sail as much as I can. Would love to find somebody who has a Hobie cat. Cause I would love to, I had a Hobie cat and would love to race, you know, a Hobie cat. Um, but it's really, it's like finding joy and finding a community um, that, uh, that I can belong to because I'm, I'm new in the city. I, so I'm looking for friends. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, I love it. And then last question, and you've already answered this earlier, but maybe you, you'll have a, a, you know, something you want to add to it, uh, because it's part of tradition on this podcast. Um, last question I ask, cause I ask this of all my guests, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Jennifer? Oh, this is so hard. I, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, that's, this is a, it's a really hard, hard, uh, it's because so much depends upon the situation that the person finds themselves in. But I guess I would just say, consider consider that you have a really 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 big life ahead of you and that you're destined to help a lot of people 
and that the pain and suffering that you're experiencing right now, you're going to look back on and be grateful for because it's going to enable you, it's going to help you help other people. And there's nothing more rewarding than, than helping to change the trajectory of somebody else's life. And that consider for a second that, that you have a much bigger life to live and it involves healing other people. And it would be a tragedy if you weren't there to do it. I love that. Think about how your pain can be used to help other people deal with theirs. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the new 988 number or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in all the show notes. You can talk, you can chat, you can text. Uh, call anybody. Call a friend. Call an enemy. Call, call customer service. Somebody's willing to listen to you. Uh, but do not suffer in silence. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. God bless.